0: Welcome to go go
1: Well, of Rant, and today I'm joined by Owen Murphy. Owen Murphy is an Irish Vindigale politician who has served as Minister for Housing, Planning, and Local Government. Owen also went to St. Michael's College and later went on to study in University College Dublin. Owen, first of all, how are you this morning? Uh, Morning, how are you? (laughs) I'm not bad. First question is about your childhood. I'm just wondering what are some of the standout memories you have of your upbringing? Right. Oh, um, yeah, I grew up in Sandy Mount, um, one of
0: six kids, five boys and one girl, and we all went to Michael's to the secondary school, and um, I was funny because when, when, when I saw in the diary that we were doing this today and I was thinking back to my time in Michael's, and I can really remember really strongly my first time in the school assembly hall on our first day in first year, we were all brought in, and um, I've been given out to you by Paul Barr, who was the dean of first year at the time, because I was laughing with a mate about something. And uh, I, I was just remembering that this morning on the, on the way in, um, you know, Michael's was a big part of me growing up uh, because so many of us went there in my family, mm. so like for so many years someone was putting on a Michael's uniform and going up the road, we grew up in Sandymount, so it played, a, yeah, it played a big part of, of, of my childhood and I'm still very
1: good friends with the guys I went to school with there, you know. Nice, and what, what type of student? Were you in school, were you very academic, were you kind of halfway, were you a bit of um, a messer?
0: <laughs> I, you go through phases I think. So mm. certainly when I came into St Michael's um, I think I was a bit of a know-it-all because I had old, three older brothers at that point, uh, Colin, Stephen and Declan, had gone through Michael's and I'd, I'd gone up to see them in the school play, I'd gone up to see them play rugby, I'd, you know, I, I, knew all, well, I thought I knew everything about Michael's and you yeah, get put in your place very quickly by the guys, particularly the guys who come through the junior school, mm. who were, like, who are all these new guys showing up. Um, get out of my school. So, um, yeah. So I mean, I, I, I and I, I really enjoyed Michael's. I think like there was a bit of a watershed moment for everyone in transition year, and I don't know if if transition year still operates the same way. But transition year was very much, you know, we were volunteering, we were doing Vincent de Paul Christmas trees, we were down in Delphi for yeah, kind of weekend like retreats, yeah, and it really brought the year together. Um, the, 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 the streams were also like we had all been in our different like in you know, a one 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 two and, and one three, and people had fallen into those, and they, everyone knew their class very well, but then that was all broken up and changed again in fourth year, and as a result we really came together as a year, so it became great fun then I think, and we, we really kind of bonded as a group from from fourth year on, and I know everyone says, oh we had a good year, and, and most people might think that, there might be yeah. people who maybe didn't enjoy it as much, but I, I do think that most people the vast majority of our year got on very well, um, and certainly once you get into fourth year there is opportunities to start messing a bit, and I think I might have ended up dropping from Honours Irish and Maths down to pass because of fourth year in a way. But no. They were choices I feel I made intentionally, you know, to try and find a bit of balance between the academics and um, and also, you know, kind of wider development and, and having a bit of fun.
1: You finish your leave in Sirs and you're, you're faced with the dilemma most students are in relation to what you go on to eventually do in college. And you went to University College Dublin. And what was the thought process about what you were going to study, and to follow on from that, did you have a clear idea of the career path you wanted to do, or were you like 99% of the universe and kind of feeling your way around?
0: Well, so both my parents went to UCD and um, did arts degrees, and my two eldest brothers had gone to UCD and done arts degrees, so I had always just assumed I was going to go to UCD and do an arts degree, and so I spent all of sixth year trying to find anything else to do. Yeah, I, applied, oh, I did through the, uh, the UK system to try and you know, go to universities over there to make it a bit different. I Just looking for anything else other than going to do arts in UCD because I, I felt like it wasn't a choice I was making. But in the end of it, after the, uh, like going through sixth year, I realised that that's what I actually wanted to do. I wanted to go up and study English in UCD. I didn't know what I wanted to do past that. I just knew I wanted to, to do that. And I went up to UCD and I had a, a brilliant time there. Um, I really, really loved my time in UCD. I have the opportunity now to talk to sixth years in Michaels and other schools and I try and kind of stress to them the importance of not thinking that the decision that you make in terms of where you that first step it's not the last step it really is only the first step but I remember at the time thinking you know I, I was limiting options or what would this mean for my future and, and trying to get out of that headspace because you have guys you know pals of mine who would have gone to UCD saying oh, I'm definitely going to be um, a doctor but then they changed halfway through guys who didn't think they'd ever be accountants but are now but they're doing their accountancy in places like Australia and they're getting to do great things because of it and people kind of going from, I had a friend, a girl and I think she was an NCAD and then went and became a solicitor and then went back to art, this kind of stuff. You get so many different opportunities in life to to kind of do different things that people I think put too much an emphasis on that first step after school Mm. when they go to college. But I, I had no idea, I just knew I wanted to study English and I wanted to make sure that I got the most out of college so I wanted to be involved in different societies and do different things like that. And I did that for um, I did it for two years, then I took a, a year out, in which I kind of travelled and worked abroad, and then I came back and did my final year. And after that year of travel, so that year of travel, um, most of it was by myself, so I was kind of getting to know people in hostels around the world, and everyone was talking about one thing, and it was about uh, the war in Iraq, in hmm. Afghanistan, This is was that kind of time. Now, at the start of my travels, I think that the US were in Afghanistan, and by the end of it, they were going into Iraq. And I became very interested in international politics as a result of, traveling around the world and having these conversations with different people from yep. different parts of the world. So when I came back, I said to my eldest brother, I said, look, I'm interested in, in international politics. What should I try and do? And he said, try, well, try and be a diplomat. And I read a great book by a guy called Eamon Delaney, who I've since kind of come to know, who wrote a great book about it. It's called The Accidental Diplomat, his experience being a young diplomat in the, in the Irish diplomatic corps. And so I worked my ass off in fourth year college. I hadn't worked at all in college. I'd, mm. I'd been kind of just enjoying it. Uh, to try and get a good result from my arts degree to get into a good university in the UK. And I did. And I went over to study international politics in King's College in London and had a fantastic year over there doing that.
1: And what, if you mind me interjecting, what made you go to King's as opposed to maybe taking a more local route, say, in a college here? A few things. I, I'd kind of come to think that
0: to get a, a, a broader education, it's better to go and do your master's in a different university. And certainly some of my lecturers had said that to me. Mm. Um Nothing wrong with, with doing a master's in UCD, but you kind of want to challenge your own approach to thinking in education, and it's good to do that in a, in a different place. I definitely wanted the full college experience of living away from home. I could only get that if I was going to go abroad, I felt. The other thing was, um, there was a couple of practical reasons. King's was a lot cheaper than the LSE, mm. because King's would charge you as if you were a UK student rather than a foreign student in LSE. I don't think at the time did that. I'm not sure why they do now. And another very practical reason was that King's They kept their they kept certain number of spaces open for people's final year academic results. I wouldn't have been strong enough for Kings on my first and second year results, and they recognise that some students don't kind of pay attention to what they're doing academically in college until their final year, Um, because back then it wasn't semesterised. It all came down kind of to the final year. So because they were keeping a couple of spaces open, and when I got my final year results, that got me into Kings, and I was yeah straight over like a shot to do that. So I did international politics in Kings. I focused on WMD because of the the kind of Iraq stuff, I found it very interesting mm. and that got me into international politics.
1: So after the the college years and the experience at King's, you move into the international arms control and specifically in the area of nuclear weapons disarmament. Yeah, I'm just wondering what was that like to step into a role like that at quite an early age?
0: That was really cool. Um, so the first thing I did, I got an internship with an NGO in London that did verification of arms control treaties and that had me going to places like the Hague where they have the Chemical Weapons Convention and talking about the different stockpiles of chemical weapons in different countries and how we were going to destroy them. It also had me involved in an open source project where we were trying to locate North Korea's uh, testing bases for their uh, nuclear bombs. So it was really exciting, really the kind of stuff that you never kind of dreamed you'd be involved in and it then took me over to the UN in Geneva where I started to work on kind of applying social science theory to negotiations, when the the, the thinking in foreign affairs traditionally had been that states, when you come to an outcome in a a negotiation, diplomatic negotiation, it's the two different state views trying to come to an agreement, and it, it doesn't take into account the role that personalities can have in these things. So I was trying to see, well, how much of an influence can a personal relationship have on the outcome of a negotiation? Um, That was interesting work and because it was in the UN in Geneva it was was quite cool. I then came back to actually work for the Department of Foreign Affairs on their weapons desk for a year and then that led me to working for two years with the test Ban organization in Vienna where we were basically monitoring international, uh, monitoring nuclear weapon testing around the world and that was very exciting because at a young age I was the speechwriter for the head of that organization and so I was part of the senior policy team and we were doing work that you know, it took me a few months to kind of get get to grips with it and to kind of appreciate just the step change in terms of the demanding the, the demands that the work would put on you, but also the seriousness of it. Mm. And um, but I I I kind of grew into it. Was very comfortable with it. There was a great team there, and the guy I was working for, a guy called Tibor Tóth, a Hungarian diplomat, was a real leader. You know, and um, when you're working for someone like that, it's it's your kind of pride in what you're doing, and I love that. It was very exciting, and it was a very difficult decision to come home when I did,
1: and I. I do miss my Vienna days sometimes, Mm. you know. It's a great city, actually. Yeah. Yeah. By travelling and experiencing, going to different hostels and different opinions of different people from different nationalities, that's what kind of sparks your interest in politics. And Do you ever feel that, looking at Ireland itself, do you think they could potentially make more of an effort to encourage young people to maybe get involved into politics after college?
0: Yeah, like so I I knew nothing about Irish politics um, when I was, as a young adult like, my family weren't involved in politics, but we had political discussions every Sunday around the, kind of, the issues and events, but we were never party political. And I had some friends in college who were party political, and I always thought it was, a kind of, a funny thing to be, kind of, interested in those types of issues at that that young an age, when I thought other, kind of, more exciting things were happening elsewhere, um, in in just, kind of, broadly in life. But it's definitely true that travel, kind of, broadens your horizons, and it does, I think, help improve your understanding of of other people and, and, and their lives and um, when I was looking back at Ireland from Vienna as the financial crisis was starting to take hold I started to question well, well who are these guys who are um, running our country and who seem to be doing a bad yeah. job of it and I a kind of an arrogant point of view mm. to, to, to you know, kind of think well, well you know, are they really up to it and it was that kind of arrogance that um, kind of made me think well look if I'm going to move home maybe I should be involved and not just be kind of cribbing from the sidelines and I should kind of put myself to the test to see, well, if, if I think I'm better than them and maybe I should go off and try and prove it. What I learned very quickly is that the people who are in politics in Ireland are exceptional. They are committed. The amount of hours that people put in is is incredible. They, are, they definitely believe in what they're doing. Like the vast, vast majority, there's always going to be crooks and, and cynics, but they make up only a small handful uh, mm. in the door, like they would in any organisation. The vast majority are, are very bright, very passionate and very committed to what they're doing and it, it's a great environment to work in from that point of view. So what I have done I've gotten involved is to try and encourage new people to get involved and you do that kind of around campaigns so one of the campaigns which was great actually like was the marriage equality campaign uh, which is something I I really strongly believed in at the time that we needed to do it but it was a chance to get other people interested and excited about the democratic process to really understand that their decisions do make a difference and their decisions their votes can help other people can Mm. help their brothers and their sisters and, and their friends and a whole load of new younger people than would have been maybe involved um uh traditionally in politics, came involved around those different campaigns that were being run by me and other politicians, and many of them have since stayed involved, which is great. When I first got involved as a councillor, Obama had just gotten uh, been elected in, in the US, and I was running for the first time. I was totally new to it. My mates in college, the vast majority of my family, totally new to it as well, and we'd all been kind of excited by Obama, so we had a very exciting kind of campaign, and a lot of young people were involved in that campaign, but they didn't stay as involved, because you then get into the kind of bread-and-butter issues of a councillor around parking provision and parks and that kind of stuff, and it doesn't excite people. So you kind of need events like marriage equality to get people re-engaged, or even just kind of important elections like the 2011 election when everyone just wanted to change a government. Um, So I do feel that. Like, we've got a youth wing of Fine Gael called Young Fine Gael. I think it's the biggest political youth organisation in the country. Some really, really good people involved in that. But I always feel that we could do more maybe to maybe demystified a bit because I certainly when I was in college when I looked at the youth political organizations I was like I'm not gonna have any interest in that kind of stuff but when I look at when I go and visit them now and see what they're doing I kind of think well actually maybe that might have interested me if I'd known a bit more about it so um and then trying to bring a bit of fun to it as well you know politics doesn't have to be so serious you can get involved in serious issues and you can believe in them passionately but you know you can still have a bit of fun around that particularly as a student and Young Fine Gael try and do that with their poster campaigns like this one at the moment and it's about um like, it's basically a, theme, a meme on Star Wars. And Leo Varadkar is the new hope. Uh, I'm Han Solo, which I'm quite happy about. I thought they might have made me Chewbacca or something. Um, that kind of stuff. I mean, it gets yeah. some people. It won't, it, won't, it won't float everyone's boat. But the most important thing, I think, as people kind of move into the workforce, start to kind of pay taxes, try and buy a house, rent a house, have other kind of issues that they deal with. That's a key time to get them engaged. Yep. And we're trying to do that as well.
1: Sweet. And your first big break when you returned to Ireland um, was been in charge of the, you were a Ministry of Finance uh, to look at the factors of the banking crisis. I'm just wondering what, in your opinion, has changed since when you were first involved to present day?
0: Yeah, so about three years into my time in the Dole, we set up a banking inquiry and I was put as one of the, the Fine members on that inquiry and that basically took a year and a half of my almost undivided attention because we were finally going to get the banks, the regulators, everyone involved, the politicians, into a a Oireachtas committee to ask them key questions. And um, we were kind of locked in a bunker for a year and a half. And I've kind of mixed emotions thinking back because there were some very exciting meetings and there were some very, very long and tedious and boring meetings. Mm. And sometimes the legality of things got in the way of us trying to achieve what we wanted to achieve. But that was the first time, like, as a politician, people expect you to be a jack of all trades. And I find that very frustrating because it's not that's not me. I prefer to try and be a master of one thing. And but as a as a backbench TD, one week people are writing to you about health, the next day it's education, the next day it's transport, and you need to try and be across all of these issues because you're obviously you're voting on these issues yep. each week. But you can't really get into the detail of them. So the banking inquiry is the first chance for me to get into the detail of something and really you know uh, dive deep into it. And so I loved that aspect of it, reading all the reports, reading through uh, financial statements from banks, reading through the. The, the kind of media pieces at the time, um, you know, the private papers of, of, of different people and, and trying to come to an outcome and I learned a lot through that, I mean, you learn a lot about regulation, about how banks behave, about how politics works, but you also, um, you learn as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a politician how to try and, and manage a, a, a process through to a solution and then immediately off the back of that we had a general election. And then we had the government formation talks, So I was asked to come in on those because I'd done a lot of work on political reform as a backbencher. And that was another step up again because now you're trying to put together, together a government and you're kind of, you're a young guy and you're, you know, it's it's like a real privilege to be there and you're kind of sitting there sometimes going, is this, am I really involved in this task <laughs> to put a government together? What, what the hell is that about? And, um, and then all, after that two or three month period, Enda Kenny made me the junior minister for finance. And that was another step up again because now you've got a, a ministerial responsibility in government. I was the junior to, to Michael Noonan and Pascal Donahue, two outstanding politicians. And you're now part of this team effort which often isn't there in politics either, which which always bothered me. We came, became a team on the banking inquiry, which was great. We were a team around the government talks, but now I was part of the government team and a huge learning curve there and a, and a massive amount of work and responsibility. And then Do you, do you think sorry to No, no worry, again. I'll talk, I'll, if you don't interrupt me I'll just keep on talking. Keep rolling I'm a politician, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I'm just wondering, especially saying you're you're just working your way up the ladder, do you think, well, people in the media suggest that you need to be really strong-minded, you need to have a bit of arrogance about yourself? Do you feel at that stage in your life you needed to have that, not so much arrogance, but that huge confidence in yourself to be able to deal with these promotions, to be dealing with such a critical analysis of the, the banking crisis?
0: You need a lot of self-belief, right? Like, as I always looked at it. When you look and think about getting involved in politics and you look at a constituency and I'll just take my own of Dublin Bay South and you say, well, Dublin Bay South's going to elect four people into the National Parliament to make decisions on their behalf. You absolutely have to believe that you should be in those four people, that that you are the best person to do that. And that's a very arrogant thing to believe. But if you don't believe that, then what are you doing there? Um, And so when you go knocking on a door and you're talking to someone you have to believe that, that they should vote for you because you're going to make the best decisions on their behalf and you're going to work harder than anyone else and bring more integrity and more honesty and those types of things so that's arrogance self belief and it drives you in and um, and that's what I think everyone in the door has because they shouldn't be there if they don't really have that belief in themselves but of course you're going to face doubt all the time you've got to make a decision on something the funny thing is now in this job I make like hundred decisions a day and I'll, <laughs> I'll be going from one meeting to another and I'll make two or three decisions on the way as people kind of come up to you and go, Minister, we want to do X, or so what do you think about Y? Now, you're not coming to a completely cold because you might have been thinking about it or working on it for a number of weeks previously, but you need to start somewhere. You need to kind of, and so you have to try and take every opportunity as they come. t cassidy to be at the Banking Inquirer, and you're nervous. You're kind of going, am I up to questioning, you know, Brian Cowan and Bertie Ahern and Charlie McCreeby, these guys in a public session with everyone watching, you know, packed room of journalists to be broadcast on TV, you know, what if I make a mistake? What if I F up? Um, and you all have those moments of doubt, but if you don't manage them and kind of put them to one side and, and kind of jump in a way, in a way, you're never going to get beyond that. You're never going to learn. So that if you ever do make it then up to the next level, which for me then was, was kind of becoming a Minister of State, you might not be able to, to make the right decisions in the best interests of people. But you will have those, those moments of doubt. I think they're healthy, um, they can be kind of difficult to manage sometimes, but I, if it's a truism like, you know, if you just work hard, you will overcome them. So I always try and make sure that no matter what I'm doing, I am as prepared as possible it means taking a bit more time it means reading more taking notes questioning asking people but the more the more i feel i have a grasp of information and the better i am to you know overcome that doubt and make the right decision and at the moment in my job of housing and it's a great thing because it's allowed me to focus completely on almost one issue and get into the into the weeds on it and get into the detail and in doing that then um you know i make these decisions and sometimes you go is this the right thing to do and you'll kick it around but you know that you've come to your eventual decision knowing that you've given it every consideration that you could and you've weighed up all the different possibilities and then it's kind of go or no go and not every decision will be right and you've got to, you've got to be aware of that as well,
1: you know Okay, you mentioned it there about you now being housing minister which is seen by sectors of the media and public as a, as a very tough job I'm just wondering what are your main priorities as yeah. housing minister? So, I mean, I came into housing in um,
0: in June of last year after um, Leo Varadkar was made Taoiseach. And it was just one of those, you know, you, you kind of go in and you say, I'm going to have one priority and it is going to be housing. But housing is, is, is so complex an issue. Like the very first thing that happened, I think it was the evening I was appointed, was the, the Grenfell Tower place in London. And I'm responsible for uh, fire regulations and I'm responsible for apartment standards and building standards. So immediately, that was my priority, making sure we, our buildings here were safe. And uh, yes, that's related to housing, but it's not exactly the, the kind of the housing problem that we need to, to fix. And then almost uh, soon after that, we had the big pipe break in Drogheda. I'm responsible for water as well. it's key infrastructure. So now you're trying to see, well, what are, what are we doing with water? Where's the investment going? Why, are these, why aren't these why these fittings to try and fix this pipe not working and you're down there and people are angry at you? And then, of course, we have a continuing crisis that we have in homelessness, and then that's, a, that's a daily thing. So. Like a, a big thing that I want to achieve, um, I mean I want to be here long enough, and this is the difficult with the democratic process, but it, it has to be there. I want to be here long enough to fix this problem. Hmm. I don't want to be turfed out in 6 or 12 months, whenever the next election is. Um, and so I'm, I'm trying to make sure that all of the decisions that I'm making are in the long-term best interests of whoever might replace me, because I do want to, to be able to say that I was in there, I did a piece of work and it helped. But as, as immediate goals, one of them is, is absolutely to get families out of hotels. Because it's not the appropriate place for kids to be, who, whose families are experiencing this crisis in their lives, you know, through no fault of their own, and so we're doing a piece of work to get more of these hubs opened up because these are much better centres. So that's definitely one piece of work that I want to do. We we did do a big piece of work around tackling rough sleeping, and um, that has proven so far successful. There's a m- big decrease in the number of people who are actually sleeping outside, and and now we're in a position where no one is forced to sleep outside. And we have people there to take you in and and, and bring you into emergency accommodation into a bed and get you into the system and i'm happy that's working in the way that it is at the moment when i think of long-term things that i want to achieve you know it's one of the things that i we were kind of i was touching upon before we started this this national planning framework it's a vision for ireland in 2040 and what will look like and that means thousands and thousands of apartment buildings it means skyscrapers in dublin and in our other cities it means you know much more vibrant and exciting city I've had the pleasure of, of of being in places like Bangkok and New York. I lived in London, I lived in Vienna, I lived in Geneva and you know we are missing a trick I think in Dublin so in the next few weeks we've already put down some kind of rough guidelines but we're really going to lift the lid on the potential I think for a city like Dublin and that's kind of one of those things that I really want to drive. But really you know um, it's all about just getting more houses built and that's that's a, you know it's about supply so uh, yeah a big part of it is going to be thousands of apartments in Dublin but all over the country we need thousands of homes built. and we've got a good plan we're, we're making changes to it as we go and um, we're kind of driving implementation there's a lot still to do um, and that, that yeah so what, what I'm responsible for you know I'm responsible for um, our response to extreme weather events the stormophilia I remember like we had just finished the budget we had managed to get a number of key things over the line of the budget it was a very very tiring piece of work a number of kind of weeks and thinking great that's the budget I might just put my feet up yeah. for the weekend and then stormophilia rocked into <laughs> town and uh, you know, and that my responsible, responsible my department is, is there for emergency management. So, so you have all these other things that are constantly happening as well. So, I kind of feel stupid sometimes saying my priority is X, and then listing like ten priorities. You kind of have to manage those, but the overall priority in the background is always
1: housing, hmm. um, and, and I try and do the other things around it as well. And then like, on the homeless crisis, they've like Dublin City Council was saying that they might consider a section of Mountjoy to home people. Um, other kind of things that you pointed out as well to help the crisis at hand. I was just wondering, that you saw Corbyn pledge to house thousands if he was elected, say, when he was in the UK. Have you seen any initiatives internationally that we, Ireland, could potentially take inspiration from or use?
0: Yeah, I have. And one of the things I said to my officials and I said to the local authorities when I came in was, think of everything. Don't just dismiss something because you think it might not go down well in public or might be a bad idea. And I put a few things back on the table that had been dismissed before to really kind of sense check them and go, why was this policy changed? Should we not change it back? And because I think you should have that open mind. I think it's critical to consider everything. And then as you consider them, then you can say no, no, no. So um, certainly like with, with Dublin City Council, I would have said, we need to have enough beds in place in the system so that no one is forced to sleep rough at night. How do we do that? And they would have considered different things. And they came to the conclusion um, that and it, the, the, the building there was, was an old training centre that was attached to Mount Joy, I think. Okay
1: so it wasn't the actual No
0: and, but like of course when, you, when it goes out into the media it's much more so yeah, they're going to put so. the homeless in prison that was never <laughs> the intention around those plans but I would have said to them if there's a facility there that is safe and secure that has individual rooms and beds and kitchens and we can get people a level of comfort and security that they wouldn't have on the streets then consider it um, and they considered it and said we don't actually need it because there are other facilities opening up um, now, had they had said to me, we need to, we think we should do this, then I would have had to then consider, well, is this the right thing? Could it create a stigma around homelessness that we don't want to? But I never had to come to that point, point of view, um, and I was aware they were considering it at the time, but really, it's a, I, I, again, one of the things I try and, and, and encourage is, is the devolution of power and responsibility to people who, who are on the front line and who can better make these decisions. So we have a Dublin Regional Homeless Executive that works on behalf of the four local authorities in Dublin where the crisis is the greatest and you want to say to them, you're the experts, so you make the decisions. Now, if there's a a big decision and you want me to kind of step in and be behind that decision or you want me to make it for you, I will do that. But really, you're the experts, you know, and and I'll be there to help you and manage it. But really, you're on the front line and do that. And and they they do that. They they do that very well. And I only have to step in on occasion. We keep a constant watching brief, obviously, as to how they're doing things to make sure they're doing them in in the right way and according to government policy. But um, they're the experts and, and they work away. One of the things that was brought to my attention almost immediately was this idea of housing first, which is one of these things around homelessness that seems so bloody obvious now, but at the time was it wasn't. Like So housing first is basically you take a homeless person, and I'm talking in very broad terms here, and you put them into a home. You say, this is your home, here are your keys. And then you bring in the wraparound supports around them. Have they got a health issue, an addiction issue? What, what's going on in their lives? How can we help them keep that home that they're now in? That was never the thinking. The thinking prior to that for years was... No, no, first you take them into a particular type of emergency facility uh, for a week or two and you do an assessment. Then you get them into a six-month short-term facility to try and see how they adapt and, and you take them to these different stages. But someone, and I can't remember, I think it was Canada where it started, said, no, just put them in the home. Give them that, that stability first and then we can work, work on everything else. And it has proven very successful where it's been adopted. And it's now become the norm. Um, but when you, th- when, you, when you think of it, it actually makes, it makes so much sense. So we are doing that now. and We just appointed a national director of housing first just a couple of weeks ago, a really good guy who knows all about this stuff. And he's gonna work with the, the NGOs and we're gonna get funding to build these kind of single and double uh, unit homes and apartments to, to make that work. And, and, and I think it will be successful in helping those people who, who need our help the most. And then, you know, <laughs> what else is happening internationally? we have this co-living stuff, um, which is, it's like student accommodation, but it's for young professionals, where you will have a smaller apartment in a block, but you'll have much much bigger communal spaces. Mm. So you, yes, can have the privacy of your own room and bathroom, but there'll be more kind of crack going on in a bigger living room with big TVs or a bigger kitchen and that kind of, so you can have a social life at home almost. And it's one of the things that when we all finished up in college in London and the guys were moving over to do jobs, they all kind of wished that that had been their first step into the city in, you know, they were working these new jobs with lots of young people we would have also liked to have some sort of support network there of peers, at, at, you know, in their, in their apartments as well. And so we've got some really exciting plans to bring that to Dublin. And some companies are talking about, you know, they'll build like one of these 200 apartments for co-living, you go and might live there for six months, maybe a year, maybe your company will place you there, so you'll be working with other people from your own company, that kind of stuff. And I think it's much more suited to the types of jobs people are working there, but also the way people, people are much more open than they were. I mean, I'm 35, I still think I'm a young guy, but when, yeah. I, you, know, when you read or see how people are interacting at the age of 20, 21, 22, um, it's so much more different and open than it was when I was, was that age, and they're much more open to these kind of concepts of co-living. So uh, we're going to see hopefully some new developments towards the end of the year. Which I think will be great
1: for the for the city. Okay, and on the kind of broad scheme of things in relation to housing the homeless, Conor Skeen recently said that certain people, to quote him, game in the system by declaring themselves homeless so that they can be bumped up on the social ha- housing ladder. I'm just wondering, do you agree with his view on this, or do you have a, a different viewpoint on it? So bit difficult to answer
0: this question because connor was in committee this week and i still haven't read the transcript from his Mm. hearing so i'm not sure what further he has said on this but at the time he had said that he had felt that there may have been an unintended consequence from a previous government policy that might have led to people trying to gain the system or try and jump the queue to get into a into a social house Mm. ahead of someone who was higher up on the list and what i said at the time was and i really believe this is that if that is his view then he has every right to express that view and it's not for me as the minister to be trying to shut down a voice that is being critical of a previous government policy or even critical of me. And I saw something in the papers about it. he might have criticized me. That's absolutely fine. That's his role. We can't all think the same. I mean, that kind of consensus thinking, that groupthink led to our financial crisis. Everyone thought, had this belief in this Celtic Tiger miracle that didn't match the, kind of the fundamentals of economics or the fundamentals of banking. And people said, no, 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 this time it's different. And It's the greatest fallacy of history. This time it's different. Because so often it never is. Yeah. And so I've always tried to take the approach that we should welcome dissenting point of views and we should welcome criticism. And we should rather than turn our faces away from it, listen to it. And so I absolutely support his right to give his view based on his experiences or his understanding of what's, what he thinks is happening or may have happened in the past. I'm not gonna shut that down my responsibility is to make sure that our policies work in getting people into new homes. And everything I have seen to date is that our policies are working. We face challenges, of course we do, but um, those policies are broadly working and we, we, we tweak and refine them where we, where we need to. Like for example, earlier, or it was September of last year, we had a housing summit and one of the recommendations that came from local authority chief executives to me was people who are being offered a social housing home should only be allowed to refuse them once. We we're having situations where people are kind of refusing three or four different homes that you know might have been perfectly acceptable now obviously people need to be happy in the choice that they make but we think that they should be given kind of two choices and kind of have to pick one and we've moved to do that to try and make sure that people aren't being left on that waiting list too long because people maybe ahead of them aren't making up their mind quickly enough so we're constantly changing policy or refining it really not changing it but refining it to make sure it's working Um, and and I'm happy that it is working you know.
1: How tough is it at times to keep control of what the newspapers are saying or what media is you know projecting because you hear fake news every time you flick on an american channel or even if you look on social media like is it still very much hugely important to frame certain articles in a certain way is there still a lot of gatekeeping going on from journalists
0: you can't control any of this and if you try you're going to just drive yourself mad and you'll become overly obsessed with it one of the things that i've had to do in this job because i get criticized so much is to try and turn off for most of it. Like I, I switched off from social media. I've just put my kind of, just gone back into Twitter a little bit recently, um, just to try and see how that might work. But all I get is abuse on social media. Okay, mm. that's fine, I get that. And, and you get people writing critical stuff in the papers and that's fine, I get that they're meant to do that. But you know, you don't want to <coughs> be kind of crippled by all of the criticism and, and then lead yourself into self doubt. So you have to put a certain degree of it to one side so you can just focus on doing your job and have confidence that you're doing the right thing. Um, and I dip in and out of the papers and I'll I'll, I'll try and read certain articles that might help better inform my position and my views and that kind of stuff Um, but you can't control the media and so you you really shouldn't try but you've got to be careful how you frame everything as well because the threshold for reporting things now seems to be so low and that has been really helped by Trump that now a tweet is (coughs) news. Yeah. You know, it used to be, I think, that you needed to have three kind of sources on the record or three off the record, but high-level sources, all this kind of stuff. If you've ever seen All the President's Men, which is a great film about the Watergate scandal mm. with um, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, they're trying to write the story, and their editor keeps on going, have you got it on the record? Have you got a source on the record? No. Well, then it's not. We can't, you know. Yeah. There was a level of ethics or a level of scrutiny within the media organizations before something was, was then put out on air. But then you get to a situation where, in a presidential contest, or do you read that a tweet? <laughs> now, right or wrong in terms of, you know, like Michael D is a great president and he was the guy to win and it's great that he won. But was that a fair way to treat another individual? I'll be careful right now what I'm saying. I can't remember now if the court case and this is concluded. I don't want to prejudice court case, mm. so I won't say any more on that. But the threshold for reporting and for doing things now seems to be very, very low. And then that does lead you into the space of, of, of fake news. And, you know, like, like, you know, how you put a headline on something. I mean, it's the importance of language, which I always found very
1: interesting. It's why I did English. Like, the word that you would use can, can, can change the meaning of something. You know, JFK... Well, it, was, it was like nearly that... The article, I think, it could have been the Irish Times or Independent, I'm not sure, on that, the homeless crisis, they were saying homeless looks set to move into Mount Joy. Yeah, when right. As you were saying, that's not the entire picture. No, but it's exactly. So that's but,
0: but they knew that it, like, they weren't wrong in, in, in writing it the way yeah. they did, but there's always a choice in the word that you use, the language, or how you present yeah, it, An argument exactly. or a, a front page um, and the real difficulty that the media organizations have today is that they are their, their financial model that they used to exist on doesn't work anymore and so that's driving them to try and find other ways to sell papers which then might create a conflict for them. Um, you know, this kind of came up in the banking inquiry a bit about papers that were invested in property companies wouldn't necessarily want to be reporting critically about a potential bubble in property because mm. then might undermine the other businesses. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm not going to get into the into the rights or wrongs of what happened because um, I went through the inquiry, but you also have a situation where papers are now competing for, for a reason for people to buy them. And so that leads to more kind of nonsense and fluff and more kind of celebrity trivia stuff. Um, but it also leads maybe to more uh, outrageous headlines to try and pull people in. And it's really difficult for newspapers and uh, for the print media. And you've got really excellent journalists who are being forced to kind of pump out three online stories a day and then a print story for the next day. And each one has to have an angle. And so anything is going to get reported now. And we need to try and find uh, a new model for them that will work, that keeps them independent of you know, government or any of that yeah. kind of stuff. I don't know what that model is yet. I don't know if they know what that is yet. And... I remember t- speaking to a journalist, and they felt, and their paper was doing an iPad promotion or something, that if you bought a subscription, an annual subscription to their paper online, you get a free iPad, and they were like, you know, I got into this to be a journalist, and now I feel like an iPad salesman, <laughs> you know? And um, I really have sympathy with that, but I really think if we don't do something soon to protect the independence, like we have an independent broadcaster in RT, which is great, but to protect the independence of other forms of media, then we are gonna run into this problem where, and you see it in America, where something will happen, and two media organisations will, will report it in completely different ways. You see it in the UK papers. You know, May will do something. And the Tory-supporting press will, uh, hero May, and the anti-May press, May blunder. You know, yeah. and there's no point in us just buying papers that are going to reinforce our own view of the world, because then we learn nothing. But that's yeah. exactly the way things are going. What we need are papers that will give an objective view as much as they can. There'll always be a, a, a right or left-leaning bias on, on issues. But... We really desperately need that kind of independent source of journalism and we really need organizations like Facebook which share so much news to really get involved in this space and really protect things like fake news because you'll see a photo and a photo, you know, said a thousand words or whatever the expression is, but photos can be so well manipulated now. Yeah. I mean, I saw one about, like, was it, you know, Obama having his hand on Melania's... Yeah. You know, uh, and I just saw two photos. One was where he had the hand on the back and one was where he had the hand lower. They both looked completely genuine. I didn't take the time to read, which was a real photo, yeah. actually. So I don't know which one it is now even as I talk about it. But that's really dangerous. But it's happening, you know. Um, and that's why Trump was so clever. He was able to target using Facebook people who agreed with his point of view and send them scare stories on immigration, on gun control, on whatever it was. And um, that was really, really effective for him. And it's actually a debate we started in government as well about how people might try to use, use social media from other countries to influence decisions around general elections and other mm. other big questions and so we started that piece of work to see well what can we do here to protect our democracy from it because i think we're kind of aware now that it happened in brexit as well so um if it can happen there it can happen here you know particularly around european questions
1: you know. mm. well said now last question of the podcast before the quick fire round i'm really nervous about the quick fire. yes yeah, <laughs> i'll go easy it's it's pretty easy all things considered I'm just wondering, where do you see yourself two, three years down the line? It's a tough question to ask because of the unpredictable nature of politics. But yeah. in an ideal world, where would you like to be? What would you like to achieve in maybe two, three years' time?
0: Okay, it's actually it's a, it's a good question um, given the times involved. So Rebuilding Ireland, which is the plan to, to fix our housing sector in this country, runs out in 2021. So I want to be here... Until the end of 2021 to see the plan through, given that it's my responsibility, and also to have put in place the successor to rebuilding Ireland to make sure that our plans because our ambitions will have to be maintained in terms of getting houses built, but the right types of houses in the right places and not making the mistakes of the past. So, I want to be here long enough to finish this plan and also put it in place and maybe even hopefully start the next plan. And uh, it's really hard for me to kind of look beyond that. Hmm. Um, and so I hope that we can stay in government. And the teacher continued to have the confidence in me to do this job up until that point in time. And then after that, um, we'll kind of see. Like, politics is, is all-consuming. What I never appreciated when I was thinking about getting involved, and I started to talk to some people who were involved in politics, is that it's a vocation. It's like being a priest. When you're a politician, there's really nothing else, uh, I find. And um, everything else has to come second because I, it's just... I felt this as a backbencher. I felt this as a TD. I felt this job is too important. Everything has to come second. And I, I feel that even more now as a Minister in Government, and particularly with the responsibilities that I have, everything has to come second. That puts strains on your personal life, you know, um, relationships end, um, you know, you don't see your mates as much as you would like to, you don't maybe pay enough attention to what's going on in your other family members' lives, and you become incredibly selfish as a result, and I think that's probably damaging long term for any individual. So. Um, I don't know if in three or four years' time I will then get a chance to get the space to uh, focus more on my personal life or other things. Um, I would expect that I'll still be involved in politics. Um, but, you know, again, there could be an election in a year's time, and my constituency might say, you know what, Owen, we want someone new. That's healthy, too. Um, so there, there is always that unknown hanging over a politician. and uh, But, I, you know, my my coming back to the, kind of the first point I made is I want to be
1: sitting in the custom house in, in three years' time. Okay, doing round two of round's round rant, hopefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll kick on to the quick-fire questions and wrap it up. So first,
0: much, When you say quick-fire, like, have I got like a few seconds to think? Uh, or, uh, yeah, know?
1: well, some people, I think the longest reply was about 56 seconds. Okay. So um, okay. it varies, but ideally a few seconds, yeah. Um, your favourite film of all time? Of all time, my God, um, I'm a huge
0: fan of Will Ferrell. So, like anything he is in, I think it's brilliant. Um, but probably up there is The Life Aquatic. Oh yeah, the Wes Anderson film that just blew me away Love from him, yeah. the visuals to the music to the acting. So it's definitely in the top three. Flash Gordon is in the top three, um, which is a classic. And a film I saw a Korean film years ago, and I'm just putting this in to sound trendy. Um, <laughs> But it was really cool. I can't remember the name of it, but I remember just it, it, it was one of the few times that I've cried at a film. Um, one of the other times being the third Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Big battle at the end. I kind of yeah. became over, overcome <laughs> with emotion. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, anyway. Tea or coffee? Both. I try and drink only one coffee a day, and I drink it black. And um, But I love a good cup of tea, and I could drink tea all day.
1: So this is the next one's quite controversial. That's a real cop out, isn't it? it, it it's a real well, political you, answer. Yeah. Mm, both. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, your favourite St Michael's teacher?
0: Oh, Jesus, that's really unfair. I had some really good teachers, but the standout was Jeff Ray. Okay. Uh, your favourite hobby? I love running. Um, I tried to take up bouldering as a hobby, but it quickly, like all my other hobbies, just kind of went away with work. But that's really, really, really exciting. But yeah, running. I just love getting out and running.
1: Your favourite band?
0: Radiohead, always. Um, I saw them in the RDS when they launched their OK Computer tour with Ronan Mahan, who was on your podcast. The two of us got some tickets. I'd never heard their music, only Creep and Paranoid Android. We had nothing else to do that weekend. And it was before they played Glastonbury with their new album. And uh, subsequently, Tom York wrote a song about that experience in Dublin and how amazing it was. Um, But it's very rare that you'll go to a gig not knowing the music can come away and be their biggest yeah. fan and that's what happened for me uh, that summer uh, with Radio uh, OK Computer and another band that happened to me with was Admiral Fallow which no one really knows about but they were supporting um, another Scottish band Frightened Rabbit and I was going to see Frightened Rabbit but
1: Admiral Fallow blew me away and I'm a huge fan of theirs as well okay if you could pick a guest to come on next who'd it be? onto your show onto the show yeah oh who'd it be? Um, I don't know um, it can be anyone
0: yeah, I have no idea. I mean, I think um, I think you should talk to, try and talk to Leo Varadkar. I think that would be an interesting one, but then it'd probably be boring because it'd be politics again. <laughs> um, I don't know, I don't know. I think if you wanted to do a good one on the history of St. Michael's, you should talk to someone like David Cargay, but that might then have a very, very exclusive audience. Yeah, <laughs> you know well... I know no you well. want this to kind of go out around the world. But Change uh, it
1: up. Yeah. Uh, your favourite tick of this character?
0: Oh, that's a good one. Um, I... <laughs> I love your man. Who's your man with the glasses, the advisor, the spad? Uh, jo- no, the guy who thinks he's Josh from the West Wing. Oh, you yeah. know thing? He's like, I am fucking Josh. Yeah. From the West Wing, yeah. Um, he's a great comedic actor.
1: And oh, the guy's just shot down the whole time.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's the younger of the two advisors. Yeah. He's always Billy and Glenn, but then always like making mistakes himself. I love him because he's
1: just so hapless and yeah. gormous in a way. We don't know his name, but <laughs> yeah. people who watch the show know who it is, so that's all that matters. And second last question, what's more important in your opinion? A good shirt or good shoes? Oh, um,
0: I think a good shirt. As someone who pays very little attention to their shoes and can never seem to buy, you know, it would just be so easy if they just kept on making the same shoes all the time. So you yeah. could just find a nice pair and just buy them every year, yeah. just buy them again. But they don't seem to do that for some no. reason.
1: No, I think, I think a good shirt, yeah. And last but not least, and this is the... Tough one in most people's eyes. Describe yourself in three words. This is the 56 second one, is it? <laughs> Where I go? Oh. This is the 56 second yeah, I
0: have to think of three words. Yeah, this is the 56 second one, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think... Um, I I've already told everyone how incredibly arrogant I am. Um, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm committed. Um, I, I think I am selfish. And I think I am... Uh,
1: ambitious committed, ambitious and selfish probably doesn't paint a good picture Uh, well, we'll (laughs) let let the (laughs) listeners decide on that one anyway, that wraps it up Owen and I want to wish you all the best in 2018 hopefully beyond that in politics and um, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing positive change in the things we've discussed, so I wish you well
0: Yeah, thanks very much and good luck to you with the podcast too
1: thank you